On this edition of the Bill Kelly Show podcast, we are talking about politics first off because we keep hearing all the politicians as the federal election campaign begins to ramp up talk about how they're going to be happy and optimistic and positive and very nice and they're not going to descend into the mud-slinging ways of their opponent, after which they promptly do exactly that. Question is, how nasty is this election campaign going to be? Because nobody believes it is going to be optimistic and sunny and lollipops and sunshine. We are also going to be chatting about Netflix, which is seeing a decline in subscriptions, at least in subscription growth. What does this mean? What does this mean to streaming? What does this mean to the idea of cutting the cord, cutting the cable and watching the cheap way? Is that coming to an end? And... Speaking of money, the Fraser Institute has just put out its update on how much Canadians are paying in taxes every year. The average Canadian, stick around to find out what, if you're the average Canadian, stick around to find out what you're paying. I don't know if you're going to like it. Enjoy. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We are about three months away from the federal election, a little less than that, but we're into August now. Seems like it's a, a, a rollover of the calendars. We're expecting to see things to start to ramp up. So are you excited? Are you excited? Yeah, I didn't think so. Uh, every day now, as I say, you're going to start seeing news reports of speeches. You're already seeing some of those. You're soon going to start seeing political ads, probably around Labor Day, maybe a little bit tiny, a little bit after that. So you have a little bit of a uh, grace period before that onslaught. But anyway, the story here is that both the Liberals and Conservatives specifically say they are going to be running positive, upbeat campaigns, unlike their mean, nasty, mud-slinging opponent. See the irony of that? Just even in explaining what they're going to do and what their opponent is like? Just in saying that, they are slinging the mud. Yesterday at a campaign stop in Ottawa, Justin Trudeau declared he would rise above partisan attacks. He would rise above fear and division. There would be no mudslinging at his opponents. And then according to reports, he proceeded to give a speech that was almost exclusively attacks on Andrew Scheer and Doug Ford. Hmm. So the question is, despite all these rather laughable assurances, historically, if we use any precedent, laughable assurances, that Canada's election is going to be all rainbows and pixie dust and lollipops, how nasty... Is it really going to get, do we expect? Tim Powers is vice chairman of SUMA Strategies. Uh, he has served as an advisor to national party leaders and a federal campaign minister. Tim joins us now. Tim, how are you this morning? I am okay, Scott. I got to say, loved your intro on the Blue Jays fire sale. It reminds all of us who are living here in Ottawa of the fire sale they did to the Ottawa Senators. So let me just tell Blue Jays fans it wasn't ex- a successful model. So there, that's my sports commentary for you. Yeah, this morning. there is. Uh, there are people all over places looking at this right now, especially with you're right with Ottawa and with other teams going. Wait a second, Do, does nobody ever learn anything from this? But. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently not. Everyone everyone knows how to do it better, right, Tim? Everybody knows how to build the better wheel. And and that leads us back to politics where everybody's going to be nicer than everybody else. But why, I think the real comparison, uh, Scott, which uh, you would approve, Tim, Tim, your line is breaking up. I haven't heard anything you've said. So we're going to call you right back and try again because we've just got a, a terrible connection. And I want to be able to hear what Tim says. But this is a, again, the irony of this situation was highlighted, and we'll get to Tim in a moment. The irony of this was highlighted yesterday. And, and the parties all do it. I mean, this is not just, but it, it was just happened to be yesterday that the Prime Minister, that Justin Trudeau, spoke glowingly about what a beacon 
of sunny ways and everything, as you've heard all this before, that he is going to be. And then, according to reporters who were there, who reported on this, the entire speech was nothing but a slam job. Back to Tim Powers. I think we hopefully have a better connection, Tim. Here, uh, you, You've seen enough of these election campaigns. Do you have a f- pretty good feeling about these things? I mean, how rough is this one going to get? It'll get rough. I mean, but it'll be PG, Scott, compared to what's happening in the U.S. And as I said there before the phone line died, maybe it was the Russians or the Chinese. Who knows? (laughs) Who killed my phone today? You know, got to watch for that, too, of course, in the election campaign. But um, compared to the U.S., and I think that's the comparison the leaders are trying to invoke. Look, this is going to be PG-13. But Justin Trudeau, as you uh, pointed out, um, saying uh, that Andrew Scheer and Doug Ford and others really aren't the nicest people, is is sort of being mean. And Andrew Scheer is going to say the same thing, that Justin Trudeau and his band are entitled. Uh, I don't think we'll... We, we may get to the place, and we've seen little shades of this over the summer, that uh, the, the Liberals have suggested that um, you know uh, Conservative candidates are playing a little bit of footsie with racism and entitlement. Tolerance. I think that's where the nasty is going to be in this campaign around immigration. But I don't think it'll be as nasty as the American one. And politicians will delude themselves into believing they've set a higher tone for us all. I do love the irony or hypocrisy, depending which word you want to use, because yeah. when they when they do these things and talk about just how optimistic and how sunny and how virtuous they are, it always is saying, as opposed to my opponent, but we're not going to descend to the level of our horrible, evil, ridiculous, bad opponent. We're better than that. And by doing that, they're just doing exactly what they say they're not going to do. Well, let me let me give it to you in my Newfoundland parlance. So I would translate that into, that other guy is just a rotten scumbag, but damn it, I'm a nice fellow. <laughs> and even though he's a rotten scumbag, I'm not going to say anything about that rotten scumbag. But guess what? <laughs> you just did. Exactly. Exactly. So when this election, by the time this election is over, October 21st, by the time this election is over, how many ads... Prediction time, Tim. How many ads will we see from either party, either major party, throw in the NDP if you want or the Greens if you like, that only, only mentions its party's leader's virtues or its party's virtues as opposed to mentioning a flaw or flaws of the other? I would say... Go ahead. No, I was going to say we call this the comeback of Hallmark cards, Scott. They'll all be sending Hallmark cards to Canadians about what wonderful people they are and how much they love them, but they may be a little critical of others. Where it will be interesting, I think, you know, you might see... Because the whole ad game, as you know, has changed, right? I think there'll be some tough ads on radio, which is good for your business and others in that business. Um, the social media sphere, I think, is going to be the nastiest because that's a lot of where the gaming is today, and it's easier to get to voters directly. So I'd be watching for the, uh, the, the mean and dirty stuff on social media. And, of course, some of it will be coming from third parties not directly affiliated with uh, with uh, with the various uh, mainstream outlets and um, the parties will condemn them but they probably won't call for them to be pulled down or anything like that and will they truly be independent third parties that have nothing to do with the parties or will it be a nudge nudge wink wink okay you guys go ahead and do that that's okay we just we just want to have plausible deniability here uh, they'll, they'll attempt plausible deniability, but I mean, links will be found because most often people who are doing third party advertising have political history because they need to know how campaigns work, right? Uh, you've seen that in Ontario. You've seen that across the country. 
Uh, you saw that before the federal campaign because uh, we, we had um, that uh, Engage Canada, uh, that third party that was uh, in league with Unifor, and uh, Unifor's been very vocal in support of the Liberal Party out condemning Andrew Scheer and bringing forward a lot of the Doug Ford comparison. Uh, that could be very effective for the Prime Minister, but, <laughs> uh, but, you know, the Prime Minister hasn't been saying that many nice things about his fellow First Minister, Premier Ford, uh, so he proves a useful foil here in this exercise. You know, all these parties and all the leaders who talk again about optimism and sharing a vision and all this, and, and we do inevitably get these attack ads and we get the negative stuff. Why is this so impossible to get away from? It's like it's crack cocaine to politicians. That You know, we try to get away, we try to get on the wagon and not be doing this, but inevitably everyone is always drawn back to it. Why is that? Because there's still lots of research that shows that, you know, hardcore differentiation of uh, yourself and your opponents can be effective. Um, and then there's just bad collective behavior, right? It's as if you're in the schoolyard. Well, Johnny's punching me in the face, so I'm going to kick him in the shin, and I'm going to, you know, uh, tackle him when he's not looking. It's a collective behavior, and it has a degree of working. I mean, look at the most controversial, arguably political story over the last few days, and that was the hell of blue Elizabeth May, the Green Party leader, got in for apparently engaging my friend and the self-styled Prince of Darkness, Warren Kinsella, right? Uh, because it was sort of an acknowledgement, at least when it initially came out, that the Greens were not supposed to be nasty. They're cuddly and lovable, like your neighborhood teddy bear uh, had hired a, a merchant of, of toughness uh, to come forward, and she had to let Kinsella go or the relationship ended, whatever it may have actually been. It was an acknowledgement that even parties like the Greens recognize that they need to um, have a, a tougher disposition. Uh, I mean, the last time we actually saw any real legitimate exercise where a politician tried to have a, a mature a tone, even-handed, that wasn't calculated, is that clip we saw over the past year when John McCain died of him calling out the voter at his town hall who questioned Barack Obama's ethnicity. I mean, that was legitimate and genuine. I don't suspect we'll see any of that in this campaign. So if this is the case, and if everybody knows this is the case, and I think everybody does, I don't think anyone listening right now who is a consumer of politics is confused by this or is going to be shocked when this happens and go, really, they said they were going to be nice. No one's expecting that. So why not, if you're the party, rather than pretending that you are a descendant of Mother Teresa and so pure, why not just come out and say, look, this is going to be rough. But candidate X, Mr. X, Mrs. X, they are a disaster. They are a complete horror show for this country. I'm going to be mean and nasty because I have to for the sake of you. Why not just come right out and explain it and say, yeah, it's going to be mean, but I have to do this. Uh, that would be too commonsensical and thoughtful. Um, and, and again, it doesn't create the contrast that the parties want, right? We are going to be besieged, as we have been for the last couple of weeks, with the upcoming American election. And we know just about every day the president is going to take to Twitter and say something so outrageous that no you know, Canadian politicians do look like Mother Teresa, not even Mother Teresa with brass knuckles when they criticize each other. And, and they're happy with that. They understand the broader environment in which 
which they live. So uh, coming forward and saying they're going to do it differently, I I think um, it's just not within their DNA because they believe there's a, you know, that comparison will get them off the hook when they do get a little mean and a little dirty. The guy, though, who does have to watch it because this is his his challenge is the prime minister. He can be, and yes, I mean it in a pejorative way, a bit preachy and a bit sanctimonious. And if he comes across too much like that, this time around, and at the same time, there's a lot of bruising and uh, and scrapping going on. It may have a little bit of a negative impact on him because, as we've seen, his personal brand has been challenged more, as you would expect, over the last uh, couple of years than it was going into the 2015 election when he did look like a choir boy standing between Stephen Harper and uh, Tom Mulcair. They're gone. Andrew Shear just looks like he got out of the Boy Scouts meeting, and Jagmeet Singh is a new player on the uh, political stage, hardly well-known. So Trudeau's really got to be careful because he is going to set the tone. So it's a different set of circumstances this time. Am I wrong, though, Tim, that despite the fact that the public, when you have polls and when you do surveys and everything else, the public says, we hate this stuff, we hate this bare-knuckle fighting, we hate the mud, we... Deep down, clearly they must like it to some degree because this stuff works. If they didn't like it, it would never work. There's an acceptance of it. And I think there's a bit of a frustration with it because of what's happening in the U.S., but they're not about to yet punish voters for being exceedingly, or sorry, politicians for being exceedingly negative. But I do think we're at an era where where we are starting, and maybe this is what the Prime Minister and Andrew Scheer are trying to get at, people are getting a little bit more tired with it. They still expect it, that there is some hope uh, in some spheres that, hey, look, you know, you guys are all talking about climate change. I'm sick of hearing about how if I don't act, the planet's going to fall to pieces. If I do act, the economy's going to fall to pieces. Can we not have a mature conversation? I think there are certain places where the public is saying, you know what, politicians, uh, put on your adult uh, mature pants and let's have a conversation. But we're not quite fully there yet. But even the public, Tim, I mean, your point is well taken for sure. But even the public, we live in a time now where if someone disagrees with you politically, if they hold a different philosophy or a different view, there was a time when you would just okay that's fine we agree to disagree now someone disagrees with you politically someone votes for the wrong party in your mind they're not just disagreeing with you they're a bad person like we we've got a much starker line in the sand in politics these days yeah and social media has not helped that, not right? at all I mean, I, not at all a great example i was on a television network the other night and i was wearing a jacket made by canada goose God forbid. Uh, I got off and there were about three tweets about what an idiot I was, how stupid I was supporting an amoral, immoral company. How dare I do all of that? You know, uh, I think people have found the vehicle of social media in its various manners and forms as an outlet for their rudeness and their crudeness. And uh, uh, so it, it reinforces the fact that, yeah, people can be mean when they want to be, and we're seeing more of that. And respectful disagreement seemingly is a harder thing, which is very unfortunate. Which goes right back to the beginning of where this thing started. And it, it, there may be a, a way that political parties in this campaign could really do the happy, upbeat ads, at least on TV and on radio and in the newspapers and online, and that's their face. And then underneath, 
the social media stuff churning away. You can do all the dirty work you want right there. And again, we go back to plausible deniability. No, look, look, that all that stuff, that's not us. That's just whoever. But And you still get the same thing accomplished. And there's always sort of been that, right? So when social media wasn't as prevalent, you had what were called surrogates who would go out and, you know, punch the lights out of the other team. So uh, you'll remember... Uh, you and I are of a certain age, the 1993 campaign, when that ad came out depicting John, Jean Chrétien's face mm-hmm. uh, the conservatives put out, and Kim Campbell disavowed it, and Mr. Chrétien uh, cried crocodile tears about it, but there was a whole legion of people on both sides out legitimizing or delegitimizing it, right? They just did it through other people appearing on local media. They didn't have social media. They weren't able to share the image to the same degree. So it's it's just changed the way... Um, nastiness manifests itself in campaigns, and it allows, perhaps, as you say, to leaders to ha- create this, you know, false sense of uh, of separation between themselves and oh, whatever happens on social media, that's not me. Tim Powers, Vice Chairman of Summa Strategies, always appreciate having you on. Thanks for doing this, Tim. Thanks, Scott. Uh, yeah, brace yourself. Once summer well in the next few weeks once summer gets a little bit closer to the end boy it is probably going to be you know bare knuckles time whether you like it or not and i know some of you do but i know some of you don't as well you're listening to the bill kelly show podcast on 900 chml there is uh there was a story the other day two or three days ago came out that netflix shares dropped more than 10 percent and now for many of you who don't own stock in the company, you're like, well, who cares? I don't care. Uh, but this speaks to a broader issue perhaps than the stock market. And that issue may well be of interest to you if you are someone who watches TV, who watches Netflix, who streams stuff. Because the reason for this drop in share prices, we are told, is because the company reported to shareholders that it's seen a huge decline in new subscribers. Something like half of the number of subscribers that were expected to sign on in the last quarter, did. And the number that did was considerably way below the numbers that have been signing on in recent years. So the pattern, which is moving along, moving along, moving along, all of a sudden has seen a big slowdown. So raises some questions. Are people bored with what Netflix is offering? Is Netflix old news? Do they not provide what people want anymore? Is the price too high? It's gone up a little bit, but is the price too high now? Or... Perhaps have they simply tapped out the market? Is there no more room for growth? It's an interesting one because streaming has been pegged as the the future of entertainment, at least sort of televised entertainment. Greg O'Brien is editor and publisher with cart.ca, which monitors the media business. Greg, how are you today? I'm pretty good, Scott. How are you? I'm excellent, thank you. Do you do you know anybody in your world who doesn't subscribe to Netflix? Uh, no, not really. <laughs> well, uh, the, the ones I can think of who don't are generally over the age of 70. <laughs> All right. And that's fine. But, but there aren't many people, even those over 70. I mean, there aren't many people. It seems as though they have done a pretty exceptional job at getting their tentacles into pretty much every corner of society. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, it's great. It's, uh, you know, there's tons and tons of content there and uh, you can watch it whenever you want. I mean, the reason I ask that is because it, when you're looking at, at Netflix, seeing their subscriber numbers, the, the new subscribers start to drop off considerably, it leads to the question, I think, and that is, if you're a company that relies on whether it's hamburgers or streaming or anything else, when you're a company that relies on constant expansion, which Netflix apparently does, 
What do you do when there are no lands left to conquer? <laughs> well, there, there's still probably plenty of lands next for left for uh, for Netflix to conquer. Um, but they've you know they've run into some, some pretty strong headwinds in places like China and India, uh, where their content offering in those languages um, is is lacking. Um, and there's also you know there's different dialects of of the languages in those countries as well. So you know they they didn't add as many um, subscribers as they thought they would last quarter. You know they also had less new content last quarter last quarter, and they also had a price increase in the United States uh, last quarter too. So all those things kind of conspired for you know against them um, just in that last quarter, so that they couldn't add as many subscribers as they hoped. So if you so there are challenges, and, and I want to go through some of what you just said. If you want to be a truly world company like Netflix intends to be, and where they're positioned to be, uh, the first one you, you've just raised it. There's how many languages in the world, and you would have to be able to address or provide content for many, many, many of those. I don't know how many languages Netflix provides in now, but it, it would have to be limited. Oh gosh, yeah, I don't remember. It, it is quite a number, you know. There. You know, just, just thinking of the European languages, you know, they're they're quite successful in Norway. They have a lot of Norwegian content, for example. Um, you know, so they they are, um, you know, they, they do intend to be a global uh, corporation. Um, but there are a lot of, you know, the, the sort of Western world didn't see Netflix coming from, you know, from afar. Um, but if you're looking, thinking, talking about the countries like in India and, and China, They've seen it coming from afar. They they've seen what Netflix is able to do, and you know, and they're largely copying it within their own countries with their own platforms. Mm. Um, so it's it's much harder for Netflix to make an influence there as easily as they did, for example, when they came to Canada, uh, their first uh, international market. And so the next thing is, okay, so your subscription base is down a little bit. So you think, okay, so we can raise prices a little bit, but there is as much risk in that as there could be benefit, right? If you start putting the prices up higher and higher. Oh, true, but you know they kind of have to. Netflix spent last year thirteen billion dollars U.S. on on content. Um, you know that includes library stuff, old movies, and things like that, and uh, their new content, which is much much more expensive. Um, you know, just to put that in context, the amount they spent in content last year is three times the amount of revenue the entire Canadian TV system earns in a year. Hmm. There you go. The, and to that new content, I read a story this week, and it was an interesting idea, although it seemed like it was uh, maybe a little goofy, I don't know, uh, that said Netflix is doing so much new content. Here's an idea. Netflix maybe should be buying theaters to show its new content in these theaters. Isn't that the opposite of why people have Netflix? To not have to go to a theater? Uh, yeah, it is. And you know that's the reason why the theater business is pretty flat now, as, nowadays as well. Um, and there have been a number of movie studios experimenting with, you know, selling first-run movies um, in, in, in areas in, in the United States, um, you know, for instead of going to the movie theater for the latest uh, release, you can get it in your home, but it's for, say, $30 for the movie rather than the regular movie theater price. So there's lots of experimentation going on, and Netflix buying movie theaters, that, that seems a little weird to me. Um, <laughs> it really does. You know, they just finished fighting with uh, with Cannes and uh, with uh, you know the Motion Picture Association to you know to make it so that their their movies don't have to reach theaters in order to be considered for Oscars and things like that. Um, 
you know, I, 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 I find it hard to believe they would buy movie theaters. But, you know, that said, Amazon's uh, starting to build stores, so who knows? The, the worst part about having Netflix in a movie theater was you would be sitting there for half an hour with everybody arguing over what it is you were going to watch, and then you just all go home without watching anything. <laughs> yeah. At least that's how it everybody, works in our house. Everybody with competing remotes trying exactly. to tap on what to watch. Uh, there is, I think probably though, when you talk about Netflix and this is the big thing and this is the, the, the challenge and you sort of tap, touched on it a moment ago, there was a time and it wasn't very long ago that Netflix was the only company really doing the kind of thing that it was. And today there's what HBO has a streaming service, Amazon prime crave all the sports networks you can stream on now, the main networks and, and like endless, endless others. Uh, Disney is now jumping into it uh, soon, and that'll be very popular. I mean, you start to create a world where it becomes pretty difficult with the competition level. True, but if if you take the parallel of the of the TV side, how many TV channels are there? You know, there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, right? That's how many over the top services like Netflix there can be. Because if you think about it, Netflix is just one great big TV channel. It's global, and you can watch stuff, you know, whenever you want. You can't, you know, you don't have to wait for eight o'clock on a Thursday to, uh, you know, to, uh, you know, to watch the latest episode. You can stream everything all at once if, uh, you know, binge watch all at once if you want. Um, so I, I think there's tons of uh, tons of room still for more players. Now, they're going to be global, like you mentioned. You know, there's going to be Disney Plus is, is going to be around the world, Netflix around the world. Uh, Hulu is going to come Hulu, yeah. eventually, I think so. You know, Amazon's going to have Prime Video everywhere. Um, there's lots of room. The, diff, the, the challenge, though, is I would think that a big reason why people have gone to streaming, or at least a lot of people, is because they were sick and tired of paying massive cable bills and they wanted to cut the cord and it was a lot cheaper. And so you say, okay, I got Netflix for 11 bucks as opposed to cable for 100 whatever every month. But if you now have to buy five or six or seven streaming channels to get what you want, you're right back to where you started. 100%. I, I firmly believe in a few years we'll all be looking back to the good old days of uh, where you only paid one company, be the, the cable company, $75 a month, and you had all the content you want. Now, there were limitations, obviously. There's ads. There's uh, time of day limitations. But once you start to add in, like you said, Disney Plus and, uh, and everything, and, and look at uh, the, the sports service, the zone, the DAZN. Mm-hmm. They now have all of the rights to English Premier League soccer. So when that um, when that league kicks up this month, it's not on TSN, it's not on Sportsnet, it's on DAZN. So you've got to buy DAZN if you want English Premier League soccer, which is the first uh, time that's ever happened in this market. And I know that back, uh, my uh, a family member of ours was trying to get, um, to buy a package just so they could watch the NBA Finals with the Raptors a while back. And they, I don't know if they bought Rogers or like Sportsnet or bought TSN, but it was like 25 bucks for the month. And that was just for one of the channels. Now you want to watch sports. Well, if you want the Canadian sports stuff, that's say 50 bucks. You're halfway to a cable bill. Why do the streaming? Just you're better off just to buy the cable and get what you want. Get everything. Yeah, you know, that's that's the competitive market, right? There's going to be different models for different things. You know, I don't think linear TV is going to go away. That's still going to be popular for sports. It's still going to be popular for special events like the Oscars or for reality shows. Um, you know, where people have to tune in at eight o'clock on Monday for the bachelorette, you know, the, those things are still, they're not going to go away. There's, there's tons, there's billions of dollars of advertising that funds all of that stuff. So it's only going to increase in cost really, because you're, you're going to pay for the convenience of streaming and binge watching stranger things or, 
you know, having di- all the Disney movies in the world available to you at your fingertips, um, it, it is only going to get more expensive. We're going to be paying, you know, so much more money for, for video um, as we move into the future. And as everyone starts to get a channel or a, a streaming service, y- you will necessarily see a lot more splintering where people are going to have to pick and choose what they get because they're not going to buy everything. Am I correct? Oh, exactly. You're, you're going to see a ton more splintering in the in the near term, and then probably long term, it's going to consolidate. You know, kind of the way cable used to be in the past. You know, cable used to be uh, small companies spread out all over the place. I mean, Hamilton was famous for having five or six cable companies uh, for a while there, and then they've all coalesced all around the country into you know a few big ones. So I think that's going to happen in the world with streamers as well where you're going to have, you know, some local ones, you know, there's something called BritBox, which only has British movies, you know, uh, and, and, and TV series. And there's, you know, there's Hey You, which is, uh, you know, an, an all-reality thing that, uh, that NBC owns. You know, so I, I think you know, once, once it all finishes splintering, it's going to all come back together um, under, you know, say three or four or five, you know, ten perhaps big global brands. You could see a day where essentially streaming is like your regular television, where one company you buy, com or whatever, and you have all the different streaming companies on your TV as it is. They're the umbrella company for all of this? Yeah, I mean, that that's one of Amazon's plans. Uh, with their Amazon channels uh, service, it's basically uh, cable through Amazon. Um, you know, so you, you just pay Amazon instead of paying Kojiko or Rogers. What you said a few moments ago, though, about the original content, and we're going back to Netflix for a moment here. If, if we're seeing all this competition, if we're seeing all this splintering and we're seeing people have to choose which one of their favorites and, and only go with some, and if we're seeing Netflix, say, go down 10% right now, and let's say that happens again, you touched on, what was it, $13 billion in original programming. If their revenues are going down, they can't continue to pump $13 billion into original programming every year, can they? Well, no, they can't. That's the reason why they have to keep growing all around the world, you know. And, and they're not really that they're not they're not profitable yet. They st- they still lose, you know, they still lose money. So um, it, it's it's something. It, it, and it's sort of the beast that they created, where you know, TV shows used to be able to monetize it over you know several months of you know releases week by week by week of new episodes. When Stranger Things dropped. Uh, early July, most of the fans binged it all in that weekend, and they were done. So, if you want to sign up for Netflix just for that month to watch Stranger, just for that month to watch Stranger Things, you can then get off Netflix and not pay them anymore. So, it's a beast that Netflix mm. has to keep on feeding, and it's it's really really costly. And it's cyclical because if subscriptions fall and revenue drops, uh, you don't want to or can't spend as much on original material. And if you don't have as much original material, it's harder to lure people back in to get subscriptions. Absolutely. And that, you know, that's, that's, that's been the challenge for, uh, for TV companies as well. But you know, the old way of doing it is, you know, you sort of needed one or two tentpole programs. So you could have a channel um, that has, you know, one or two great shows that is on, you know, one's on eight o'clock Wednesday and one's on at uh, nine o'clock on Thursday. And you subscribe to that channel because you know, those two favorite shows of yours are going to come on uh, every week. Um, you know, but you pay for it monthly because it's spread out across the month. So let me throw two things, let me throw two things at you then two possibilities. You tell me if you think either of these things are going to happen on Netflix or other ones. The first one 
Right now, Stranger Things, for example, great example, came out, everybody was, has, has watched it, it's a huge hit for them, but every episode came out in one giant lump so you could sit down and binge watch that evening. How long until Netflix says, that's not working for us because of what you just described, where I sign up for a month and then I sign off. We're going to have these programs, but we're going to do it old school cable style where once a week a program comes out so you can you have to stick with us. They, they've done some experimenting with that when they do partnerships with uh, TV TV channels. So and with an E, they did um, an experiment. They, you know that was a co-production with CBC. So it doesn't all drop on Netflix all at once because CBC has the first window, is how they refer to it in the industry. So once it airs on CBC, then it was transferred over to Netflix. And they did the same thing with Riverdale and the CW. So they've experimented with content that they don't own 100% of with different windows, different ways they, 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 they display it. But I can't see Netflix ever saying, you know, we're going to change our entire business plan because people really love the binge-watching model. Mm-hmm. You know, they like to go on and watch, you know, whether it's a series of movies or, or a TV series and watch them all in a row. Yeah, and, and the, what's the difference then if you, if you can't do that? Why not just watch TV week after week and set your PVR? That's the first one. The other one, and probably the bigger one, and frankly, I'm shocked this hasn't come up yet. How long until we have, I hate to say it, ads all over Netflix just to be able to keep the revenues up? Yeah, I mean, their, their CEO addressed that in their last quarterly conference call that I listened to, and uh, he said, no, they're, you know, there's not ever going to be advertising on Netflix. Uh, I don't believe him, um, <laughs> simply, <laughs> simply because at some point, you know, you'd max out the growth in subscribers, and your shareholders are still demanding growth in the share price and growth in the revenue. And my God, the number of advertisers and the amount of money that would line up just to have, you know, a, a 10 second pre-roll ad before Stranger Things, you know, they, they wouldn't be able to, to, there'd be so much money that would flow into that and, that they wouldn't be able to beat that away. And we've seen this other places as well. You want to, you want, you can watch without ads, but you just have to pay a premium. So instead of $13 a month or whatever it is, now you pay $20 a month and you don't have to bother with those silly ads. But if you pay the 13, you can still watch them. Now we've got revenue coming in from two new places. Yeah, exactly. CBS All Access, which is available in Canada, has a two-tiered model like that, where you can pay a higher price for no ads or a lower price, and you still have you still have some ad load. Not the same ad load as you see on TV, which can be pretty uh, pretty big, especially with the U.S. channels. Um, but uh, but yeah, the, you're, there's going to be a ton of different models, uh, you know, and there's still a lot of free over over the top uh, as well. It's that's just supported by advertising. Greg O'Brien, editor and publisher of cart.ca, C-A-R-T-T, if you want to go look that up, .ca. Greg, appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this today. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Uh, one thing about the, uh, the price of Netflix and about the idea of increasing the price, and Greg says it's inevitable, and I'm sure it probably is, but I'll say this as an example. Well, I once belonged to a gym, workout place, and I asked them at one point, because it was quite inexpensive, I said, when am I going to see my rates go up. I know it's going to happen. And they said, never. And I didn't, that didn't make much sense to me. And I said, why not? And they said, because right now, so many people are members of this gym, never come. But because that amount that never changes is on their visa bill, they never even notice it. So it just, it, it just keeps showing up and no one cancels because why cancel? They don't even realize it anymore. The minute we start to put that price up, suddenly there's a different number on their visa bill or their MasterCard bill. And they go, oh, you know what? I don't use that gym anymore enough and I'll cancel. It is smart business. It's the same thing with this. You got to believe that they're going to be really careful 
Because as soon as they put it up too high, people who aren't watching Netflix or other streaming services very often are going to say, ah, don't watch it. But you know what? If it's just $13 week month, or month after month, you don't even notice it anymore, well, I'll just keep signed up. Not hurting anyone. I'll watch a movie once in a while. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We love every once in a while to dive into the world of taxes because it's everybody's favorite topic. Everybody loves taxes, don't they? Actually, you know, the funny thing is some people, some people lobby for higher taxes. That's good for them. Good for them. But one of the things that comes up often, and we're going to get into in just a moment, what you are paying in taxes based on a new Fraser Institute report that was just released today. But one of the things that comes out often that you hear more than occasionally from politicians is about stuff that we get in this country for free, especially healthcare, free healthcare we have in Canada, free, it's free. In fact, don't let me make this up. Uh, when the Kawhi Leonard sweepstakes were going on, when the Toronto Raptors star, former Toronto Raptors star was deciding who he should be maybe playing for. Should I go to the LA Clippers? Should I go to the Lakers? Should I go somewhere else? It was federal health minister, Jeanette Petipa Taylor who put out on Twitter that Kawhi should stay in Canada because he'll receive, ready for it, free health care. That's right, free health care. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. You know what we pay to get the free health care? Canada spends $163 billion, and that was 2018, $163 billion on health care in this country. Now, Some places that might be free, maybe in Bill Gates' backyard, but that's not free in my world. Free healthcare. It is included healthcare. It's covered healthcare. It's not free healthcare. Free, which seems to be a word that we have a difficult time with these days, some people anyway, politicians most notably. Free, just so we have a refresher here, means it costs nothing. It is gratis. It is given. Free, we don't have free education in this country. Unless Sam Hammond and the rest of the teachers unions leadership and everyone else has decided suddenly in the last five minutes that I've not been aware of that they are doing something entirely philanthropic and have decided that all teachers, administrators and janitorial and everyone else are all now giving their services to the youth of our country for the next number of years. We don't have free education in this country. You have included education in this country with your taxes. Nothing is free. Politicians, remember, it was during the last run up to the last election that Kathleen Wynne threw out the idea that we will have free university for everybody. Free! Anyone who wants to go to university gets it for free. No, they wouldn't because it would be in, it would be paid and it would be paid in in the term in the form of taxes. Not free. But free is what we like in this country, apparently. Free is a word that resonates. Free is a word that we enjoy hearing, that you're going to get something for free. And so we don't really think about what it is that we're paying to get free. One more thing about free. I don't know if you've ever been to an all-inclusive resort or on a cruise or somewhere like that. You go somewhere, Disney World even, somewhere like that. If you go to Disney World, let's use that one because it's probably the most common example. If you go to Disney World, once you're in the park, you ride all the rides for free 
but you don't get in the park until you've paid your admission fee, which is decidedly not free. It's like 120 bucks, 130 Canadian each now. So it's not free. You can't say that when I go on a cruise, all my food is free. It's included. And that's the big difference. So why are we talking about all this? Why are we bringing all this up? Well, because the Fraser Institute released its study of Canadian taxes this morning, specifically it outlined what you are paying. If you are an average Canadian, an average Canadian family, what are you paying in taxes? You ready? Some of you may want to sit down for this. Some of you may be fine with it. Some of you may want to sit down for this. The average Canadian family, typical ma and pa, spend, pardon me, the average Canadian family sent 44% of their income to all levels of taxes last year. 44% of what you brought in went to various levels of government. That works out, again, for the average Canadian family, that works out to $39,299. Money that you have brought in through your income, that you have got from your employer, from your jobs, whatever, $39,299 has gone out to all the various different layers of taxation in this country so that you can have free stuff. When you pay 40,000 bucks, everything is free. It's pretty good. Uh, That is more, by the way, according to the Fraser Institute, that's more than that same average Canadian family spends on housing, food, and clothing combined. So you put those three things, which are supposedly, I guess, your three biggest expenses, at least that's what we think. Those three combined don't add up to what you're paying in taxes now. And since 1961, and there's probably a few listeners who were paying taxes back in 1961, since 1961, that is an increase in taxes. You ready for this? Our tax rate has gone up (laughs) 2,246%. I mean, it's, it's a staggering number. It is a staggering number. I just don't even understand how... It goes up that fast. Well, I do know how it goes up that fast because there's always something that we need to be doing. We need something to be spent on. We need to add something. Politicians and, you know, politicians get the blame in this one to some degree, to a large degree, because they're ultimately the ones who are passing the laws that increase taxes. Politicians, many of them love being there for ribbon cuttings, love being there to open new facilities and everything else that costs money. They want to cut the ribbon. They want to have a plaque with their name on it. They want to get reelected. That costs money. I want to bring in Ian Lee from the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. Ian, thanks for doing this today. Uh, my pleasure, Scott. Thanks. Uh, we're just talking about the amount that the average Canadian family is spending on taxes here. 44% of your income, $39,299 for the average Canadian family. Um, It seems as though everybody recognizes, I think that's a big amount of money. I think that's a big chunk. It seems most people recognize that it's a big chunk of your money that is going to government. seems everybody recognizes this, except for the governments and politicians themselves who think there's an increasingly able pot or an appetite to pay more and more and more. Am I wrong? 
Uh, no, 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 I, I do think you're right. And just, just in case any of your listeners, there's some sort of doubting Thomases out there who are skeptical, uh, this me- uh, the Fraser Institute was not the first organization to measure this. Uh, and there are some people that may be skeptical of the Fraser because it has a, uh, uh, you know, it's a, c- a more conservative, uh, philosophically conservative think tank. But in fact, the OECD, which is the Western agency owned and run and operated and funded by all the Western governments of Western Europe, Canada, U.S., Japan's of Korea, uh, think of it as the think tank for the Western governments, and it's been around for 70-odd years, and they collect enormous statistics working with the national statistical agencies of Canada, U.S., etc., and they measure just about everything you can imagine, infant mortality, elder poverty, everything, everything. And one of the things they measure is taxation and the amount paid in by taxes in each country. And then they compare it as a percentage of GDP. And they don't just do gross taxes. They do how much are corporate income tax, how much personal income tax, how much in sales tax or VAT tax or consumption taxes, real estate taxes, and so forth. And Canada uh, has been averaging for many, many years. Uh, we're actually tied, ironically, with the states. People think taxes are much lower in the states, but it's about 42% of GDP. And that number, just so everybody understands, is the total amount spent by all levels of government, federal, provincial, and municipal, divided by the total GDP. And so the Fraser's coming up with 44%. That's awfully close to the uh, the gold standard of the OECD, which says that all levels of government account for about 42% of GDP. In other words, the spending by governments is equal to 42%. And governments setting aside, they run deficits. Let's set that aside and not get complicated. Um, funding of government, the spending of government is offset by the taxes collected by government. And so the total amount they spend and collect is roughly equivalent to 42% of GDP, which is approaching half of of the economy, which in plain English means we, all of us, on average, because some pay more, some pay less, but the average is that out of every dollar we make, 42 cents goes to governments, plural. That's not the federal, that's the federal, the provincial, and the municipal. So it's, 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 it's large. It's very, it's very large. And, and just, large. just to go through this, because some people are saying, well, okay, and even with what you just said, Ian, how are we getting to 44%? Well, the, the Fraser Institute in their report put this, and it's not a complete list, but it's a pretty comprehensive list. Yes. Income tax, payroll and health tax, sales yes. taxes, property taxes, profit taxes, liquor, yes. tobacco, amusement, and other excise taxes, fuel, motor vehicle license, and carbon taxes, other taxes, natural resource taxes, import duties. These yes. are all areas where you are being nicked each single time you buy something or you live somewhere or whatever else. It is a, and in some of these cases, uh, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but now you look at some of these, as you look at this list and you realize, wait a second, there's a lot of places where I'm being double or triple taxed. I'm getting my income. I pay my income tax. Now what I've got left, I have to pay tax on that. What I have left, I have to pay tax on that. The government, I don't even know if it's just 44%. It almost seems higher. Well, I know I, I, I do trust that figure because they they deal with the double counting question, and uh, and and at the end of the day, governments are spending money, 
and that's measurable. Every government reports how much it spends, and so it's actually from an accounting, from an, an economic, statistical accounting point of view, it's actually fairly easy to figure it out because uh, at the aggregate level, governments report all their revenues, called tax revenues, and they report all their expenditures, and and so it's fairly easy to add it up. And um, and and as I said, in Canada, I'm just talking Canada. Uh, I'll get to the bad news about Europe. They're actually way worse shape than we are because uh, they're running 55 and 60 percent. So they're paying over half of their income on taxes because in Europe they really like taxes and they really like government uh, social programs. But in Canada and the U.S., it's around 42 percent, which is the totality of the spending of the government of Canada, the ten provinces, three territories, and all of the municipalities of which there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands. So when you add all that up, that's what they're spending. It's about 42% of GDP. If someone says, well, okay, what's that mean? Well, Canada's about $2 trillion. So 42% is over $800 billion mm. annually, every year, every year, every year. And I am that's not... what governments are spending in Canada. I'm not one of those who takes the position that taxes, by their nature, are evil, that we should pay no taxes. It is clear right. that taxes have a purpose. Taxes... Mm-hmm. Uh, provide for some social programs and, and things along those lines. I, I don't think there's too many people out there saying we should have no taxes whatsoever. I think the frustration for a lot of people, Ian, when they see these numbers that come out today is 44%. How much of that 44% is truly necessary and how much is being spent in ways that we sort of raise an eyebrow and go, really? I, I, you took the words out of my mouth. I also, I, I don't hide the fact that I'm a fiscal conservative, you know, believe in economic growth and believe the government should balance their budgets, except when they're in, uh, in a recession. Uh, but at the same time, so, uh, you know, I understand the, the uh, usefulness of government. Of course, it includes funding our health care system, our single-payer health care system that's something like 90 or 95 percent of Canadians support. Uh, I get that. And, of course, we need police and fire and, and all that good stuff. I'm skeptical that we need to spend that much or to put it slightly differently, back in the 60s or 70s or 80s, when we weren't spending anywhere close to 42%, and I was alive and an adult in those times, and I don't think that I was um, living in poverty or in horrible destitute conditions in the 70s or 80s. I actually was living very well like every other Canadian. And um, so we've, I think we are hitting the outer edge, the outer limit of what people will support, although, yes, there still are politicians who are saying, look, we want to increase your taxes. They've always got a noble reason. They, you know, they want to fight poverty, they want to fight global warming, whatever. But at the end of the day, um, it, 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 we, are, we, do not, we individuals do not have infinite income, infinite meaning just endless income. We have very finite amount of income, and when they increase taxes, that's less money we have in our pockets to spend on holidays or buying a new car or doing a renovation or going to a restaurant or going to a movie. And uh, this is where um, I watched the debates last night. I'm not trying to change the subject at all, but it was fascinating watching the Democratic Party debates because it's a real split between those who want to make the government bigger in the states and those who say, wait a minute, it's already big enough. And, and, you know, this is really just a rehash of what you and I are talking about right now and whether or not we ought to take the government to make it governments uh, larger than they are now so that they go from 42 or 44 percent 
to 48% or 50 or 55% like many of the European uh, countries. Uh, but they, they've got massive problems because uh, I think there's a very real recognition that they have gone too far and there's, they're getting real pushback now. But Ian, with all those things, every time you say there's a new program or something, it means necessarily that government has yes. to get bigger. That's only part of yes. the challenge, though, because the other challenge, some people will call it a problem, is that public sector employees, their raises are going up far faster than private sector. There seems to be a bit of an unstoppable train when it comes to costs to feed the public sector. And, and, and there doesn't seem yeah. to be any way to pull this aside or to tamp it down now. That's right. Actually, it's, I, I, to be, and I'm in the public sector, the broader public sector. I'm not in the public service, but I'm in the broader public sector. And uh, there is no question, and I'm, I'm, I think I'm one of the few people in the public sector, broader public sector, that's, that acknowledges this. Uh, people in the broader public sector, and I mean by that teachers and hospital workers and school boards and universities and municipalities and, of course, the public service of Ontario and of government, they are, on average, paid higher salaries. There are very good studies documenting this. Every one of them has a pension plan that's fully indexed and is a defined benefits pension, which has almost disappeared in the private sector. And so they have better benefits, higher wages, and a pension. And there's many, many people in the private sector. Sixty percent of people in the private sector have no company pension at all. So there's a real serious problem of equity or fairness or social justice here where the people... It's almost like there's two classes of people in Canada. You know, if you're in the public sector, you're a higher class, and you get much superior wages. And I'm sure some, there's some school teachers listening to you, and they're probably getting madder and, uh, right now and want to throw something at the radio. But I'm speaking truth to power. Um, you know, teachers, professors, college instructors, hospital workers are paid when you compare apples to apples at the same approximate type of job with the same qualifications. People in the public sector are better paid. And we have more benefits, and we have uh, basically 100% of us have pensions that are guaranteed by the taxpayer. So they can't fail like Nortel or Sears. And so you have to ask questions, is that fair that the 4 million people in the broader public sector in Canada have a superior standard of living compared to the 14 million people in Canada employed in the private sector? Those numbers I just threw at you are straight from StatsCan. There's 18 million people employed, 4 million in the broader public sector, 14 million in the private sector, and the public sector is doing much better uh, and is better compensated and has better benefits and better pensions than people in the private sector on average. We only have about 30 seconds, but the irony of this whole thing is I think most people would argue that they feel they are taxed heavily in this country. Most, not everybody, but most people okay. feel that they would love to see taxes down a little bit, and yet any time a politician says we have to cut a program or nip away at something, they scream. So that it, it's fine. I want less, but I want more. That's exactly the paradox, and we're seeing it right now in Ontario, where, in my opinion, and there's a lot of data to support this, the government of Ontario has been living beyond its means for a very long time, and its finances, in my judgment, and others, are unsustainable in the medium-long term. The PBO said that in its study last year, by the way. And yet, if you try to address that crisis of unsustainable spending, uh, people, uh, you know, there's very strong pushback, and we're seeing it every day. How dare you cut legal aid? How dare you, you know, cut anything? And yet, we're sitting on the largest debt in the world of any subnational government. Subnational is the fancy academic term, meaning not the national government, but like state or provincial governments, the second level governments. 
we have the largest debt now in the world. And, and yet, if you say, okay, we've got to address this, we just can't go on living like this, then there's riots in the street, there's protests every day in the media, and people are saying it's savage and, and uh, draconian and, and shouldn't happen. So we have a lot of contradictions on this subject. Ian Lee, Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. Thanks so much for the time, as always. My pleasure. Thank you. Uh, yeah, and to pay all those things, we have to have more taxes. So it is a conundrum. It is a conundrum. But yeah, 44%. 39,000, what was the number here again? $39,299 you're paying in taxes if you're an average Canadian family. Chew on that over the break. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.